Oh my goodness, scorekeepers, we're back. Yay, it's time for another episode of The Score, the podcast from Minnesota Opera, where we take a look at opera and classical music and pop culture and all those fun things um, through the lens of three Black queer opera administrators. As always, I am Rocky Jones. As always, I'm here with my two friends and co-hosts, Lee Bynum and Yawo Inawale. Hello, how are you both today? Howdy. Hello, how are you? <laughs> good, good, good. Well, I feel good. like I have not seen either of you since <laughs> uh, before Juneteenth, so happy belated Juneteenth. Happy Juneteenth. <laughs> yes. yes. Did y'all do anything fun and exciting? Uh, enjoyed some good old black rest. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds sounds a lot like your pride plans. (laughs) (laughs) True, true. There might be, there might be a theme here. Yeah. (laughs) Well, actually pride ended up turning out a lot different than I had planned. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I actually, pride plans formed surprisingly i don't know if i told y'all that uh, about me going to the black rodeo no no i did not talk about this no not at all oh snap okay uh surprise content uh i went to the rodeo well i missed a lot of the rodeo we were late that's a whole nother story but still (laughs) there is a rodeo called the midwest invitational that happens i guess it's annual it's been happening since like 2017 or something midwest invitational is all black cowboys and cowgirls Hmm. yes in Michigan. Um, this was at the Wayne County Fairgrounds. Um, so actually kind of close to, to where I grew up. And I wasn't surprised to hear it was out there because there's been like a community of like rural Black folks or communities who have lived out in that area of Michigan for a while. Like I've, there's been horse farmers and other types of farmers and stuff out there. So I was like, I'm gonna go home for the weekend. Why not? Uh, my friend Nay came with me, also Black, queer, trans, brilliant human being, uh, and we had a ball, And but then we found out Detroit Pride was the same weekend. Oh, so okay. we went to the Pride Parade, we went to brunch. Come on, Brookback um, Mountain. <laughs> people from my city are so beautiful, I forgot, like, me and Nay fell in love, like, three times over the weekend, Aww. like, it was great, it was so wonderful like black cowboys black <laughs> queer folks like it wasn't the detroit black prize there was still you know a lot of diversity a lot of <laughs> a lot of folks from the suburbs but that's all right um it was a good time though so i i ended up having a uh, pride plans Good ones, real good ones. They just they pop down out of the universe. Well, good for you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so, Lee, did you do anything special for Juneteenth or Pride? Um, no. I also I also did go home um, since we last talked, so that was good. Going back to 
Virginia seeing my family. Damien was in a show out there. Um, so we went to see his show, a large contingent of us. There were 17 of us, um, but it was an opera with an all black cast. So we were in great company yes. in the audience, um, taking in some of the culture and then ate a bunch of fried things and then came back here to Minneapolis and binge watched Legendary, got <laughs> caught up on RuPaul. That was all of the pride that I needed for one little weekend. And then also <laughs> watched Stranger Things and got to see, um, I, I kind of like watching Stranger Things because it gives me this impression of what people in Damien's generation were doing when they were kids because they're a little bit older than I am. So I feel like, you know, I don't remember the early 80s. So watching that show kind of gives me this kind of different perspective on what Generation Xers were out there <laughs> doing during their childhood. And it's a it's a fun show if you don't watch it. And this season is is pretty good. And if you like things like Goonies or uh... Kate Bush. Apparently, according yeah, apparently to TikTok, Bush, right? according to TikTok. <laughs> um, that that is plentiful. And then I also watched because you can tell my ply, my pride plans were all indoors. Um, everything, everywhere, all at once, which is a damn good yes. movie. Um, a nice breaker of stereotypes. And if you are a fan of Michelle Yao, and I am, and have been for a long time, and all of you clearly are because everybody who's listening to the show has good sense. It's a great movie. It's a lot of fun. So go watch that too. And then drop us a line and tell us what you thought. Did you sleep? My God. Um, yes, I also got a lot of sleep. <laughs> it was a great couple of days. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I second that everything everywhere all at once was fantastic. Yes. And I've never gotten to see like Asian actors have roles like that. And that just makes yep. it all the more special. Like, oh, I want to watch it again. <laughs> and yeah. the Goonies tie in because Data from Goonies is also um, yeah. the male lead in uh, Everything Everywhere all at once. And it's just, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a fun summer movie you know everybody's all into this multiverse business lately mm -hmm. and and it does a really good job with that if the multiverse is real i want out of this universe i want to try one of the other ones <laughs> this one is not working <laughs> thank you monkey pox um but it was a, a great I... little <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah 2020s man this is not this decade is not it it's just not it I saw somebody, I saw, or saw a meme on Twitter the other day that was like, um, like humanity, like, you know, hey God, can 2022 just be like a good year? And then like some, I don't know what movie it was from, but it was somebody going, are y'all still alive? <laughs> <laughs> hey, y'all are still alive? <laughs> It's only like. funny because it's true. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also chilled out literally for Juneteenth because like it was like hotter than 
oh my god it was like 100 degrees <laughs> not here for it at all so yes i sat on my behind and i watched the tv as well i have a friend back home who has just recently um discovered the house, real housewives of potomac <laughs> and so has been blowing up the group text uh with oh my god i can't believe karen huger the grand dame and we're all just like you know what i think we'll all just watch along with you because <laughs> <laughs> this is fun so it's just been fun reconnecting with all of them um and just being silly and goofy and ah but you guys so this is being released on monday june 27th we are recording this on wednesday june 22nd and we are having a laugh and a kiki but it's a very (laughs) distinct possibility that we are coming to you from the before times (laughs) thanks to our lovely supreme court in washington dc and of course there have been a lot of before times you know before the pandemic before trump and now before dobbs um so um as in what is seems to be coming a very um cool um yearly tradition um around this time of the year Um, we convened a panel um, to talk about some of the issues, especially right now with the rights of the she's and the they's and the gays um, under particular attack. And it being Juneteenth, um, we really wanted to talk about some issues that are affecting um, Black women um, in particular. And so Lee um, convened um, a panel of some very intelligent, incredible, accomplished Black women. And would you like to tell us more about it, Lee? I'd love to. That's actually why I'm here today. Oh. Um, (laughs) You know, obviously, issues related to Black women are important to this podcast and important to our company. And one of the biggest challenges, I think, that is facing us at our own company is is the general underrepresentation of this really important demographic group that is also generally underrepresented in leadership spaces. So it was really important, I think, for us to be able to hear from a group of Black women who lead organizations, who lead the kind of organizations that we seek to partner with, um, and also one scholar whose research is around the activism of Black women, and then have them come together and tell us how we are showing up and are not showing up and should be showing up to support both organizations that they lead and issues that are important to them as a demographic group and then them as individual people, um, women, mothers, wives, citizens, leaders, etc. And we had a, a conversation that was equal parts um, thought-provoking, provocative, challenging, funny, hopeful, pragmatic, um, and cover a lot of ground. And, and one of the things that I really want to make sure that we are sharing with our audience is that we asked questions and then we gave them the space to answer the questions and we are not 
censoring or reframing what they said. We are taking it in toto and we are really thinking about what it means also to show up and hear that we are not showing up in the ways that we should and hear that there are opportunities to do better and then also hear that there are moments where the best ways that we can show up in support of people is by getting out of their way and trusting them to do what they know is best in their own best interest right and this was a conversation i was extremely excited about i've known all four of these women for um, between 15 and 25 years and have come to really value their perspectives on things. And as you will hear with their bios, um, they were the right group of people to bring for a conversation where they're also demonstrating the fact that Black women are not a monolith, right? Mm -hmm. They are, despite the fact that sometimes when we're looking at the voting patterns, we may assume that Black women all are thinking about things in the same way. That's certainly not the case, right? And I feel like there were moments of both challenging um, the status quo and then also kind of reframing what it is that they were seeing that I think there are going to be a lot of takeaways for the audience and a lot of different kind of takeaways. And we're super excited to share this conversation with you and I will encourage you as well to go out and support the organizations that they represent, engage with the research and the work that they're doing and um, continue to show up for organizations that are led by black women and other women of color and continue to be supportive of issues that are facing these demographic groups because I, I think as Rocky has intimated, we are in a moment right now where as a society, there are a lot of questions that I don't know that we are answering correctly. We're getting a lot of stuff wrong. We are missing mm -hmm. a lot of perspectives. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a moment for us to check ourselves and, and pause with what we're doing. And I'm hoping that this conversation is going to be a piece of that for some in our audience. Beautifully said, beautifully Ashe. said. <laughs> I think this might be a good opportunity for some of y'all out there perhaps to practice a little receiving and believing, mm -hmm. perhaps, mm -hmm. <laughs> perhaps, um, but <laughs> <laughs> you're a gift for understatement, Mr. Jones. <laughs> well, I do what I can. I do what I can. <laughs> um, but I'm so excited for this conversation. Thank you so much, Lee, for, for putting this all together. And um, I'm really excited for all of you all there out there to, uh, to hear it. Um, it's a little, like you said, it's super funny at points, spicy at points, poignant mm -hmm. at, po at points, mm -hmm. but always incredibly just honest. And I think just something that we all need to hear. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for putting it together. Yeah, absolutely. 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 More so, space it like that. <laughs> yes. We know you more. Yes. 1000%. And, you know, and we plan to make more spaces on this show like this, you know? Oh, yeah. So that's what we're here for. <laughs> and I hope you all enjoy this conversation. And we will see you on the other side. Um, with some much needed pure black joy. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you for joining us today, everyone. My name is Lee Bynum, and I am the Vice President for Impact here at Minnesota Opera. Happy Juneteenth. To mark this momentous American holiday, we wanted to shed some light on a critical topic that has gone underexplored and undiscussed, Black women's leadership. What is the status quo? How did we get here? And what have the challenges been? And where do the opportunities for amelioration exist? So first and foremost, why are we, an arts organization, an opera company, participating in this conversation? Well, we see the issue. We see it in our own organizational recruitment, advancement, engagement, and fundraising efforts, and we want to do better. We want to improve our internal processes, and just as significantly, we want to show up better in the community in our support of organizations led by Black women and the social issues that animate their work and their activism. Towards that end of this conversation, we will also start to answer the question of what arts organizations and other interested parties can do to be better in terms of supporting Black women. But let's start with the facts. Black women comprise 7.5% of the American populace, but only account for about 1.5% of C-suite positions, and that's the case across all sectors and all media. By comparison, white men, who are only 35% of the population, occupy 70% of C-suite roles. Secondly, 49% of Black women see their race as creating impediments relative to raises, promotions, and their own career advancement, as opposed to just 3% of white women and 11% of women overall. And thirdly, in terms of workplace visibility, nearly 60% of Black women report never even having had a substantive conversation with the senior leader at their organization, right? So as we think about the, the bleakness of these statistics, there is a lot of historical and even contemporary erasure around the contributions and the work of Black women. So we want to take this opportunity to highlight and celebrate, and we've brought together an extraordinary group of Black women leaders to share their experiences and guide our thinking. So I will ask each of them to take a minute or so to share who they are and which organizations they represent. I will start with you, Jasmine. Hey, happy Juneteenth. My name is Jasmine Young. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Ethnic Studies at the University of California, Riverside. I'm trained as a historian of Black women's history, mostly in the 20th century, US history and Black history. Thank you. It's good to have you here with us today. Um, Nicole, could you introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Nicole Richards. I am a PhD candidate at the University of Southern California. I'll be defending my dissertation in a little over a week. And I'm also the executive director and founder of Rosemary African Education, which is a nonprofit that fosters and sustains connections between the Black diaspora and Senegal by way of education, arts, and eco service. Thank you for being here, Dr. Richards. Tanya, would you introduce yourself? Okay. Hello, my name is Tanya Denise Fields. I am often known online as Mama Tanya. I am the executive director and founder of a Bronx-based organization called the Black Feminist Project. I am also the host and creator of an online lifestyle and food genre IG feed called Mama Tanya's Kitchen. Um, yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mama. And Liz, <laughs> would you introduce yourself? 
Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Liz Clayroy. I'm the CEO of Generation Citizen. Uh, Generation Citizen is um, a democracy organization, um, and we bring community-based action civics um, into middle and high schools across the country. I'm really proud to um, be an equity-rooted civics organization um, that's focused on um, bringing young people's voice forward um, to really build our democracy from the ground up. Glad to be here. Thank you, Liz. I'm super excited to have you here as well. So right out of the gate, I want to open the floor to anyone who wants to share why it's necessary to have the perspectives and experiences of Black women represented in your field, whatever your field is, right? Why do we need to have these perspectives? And if you have a perspective on why we're not getting them, I'd love to hear that as well. I'm happy to go first, um, though I'm very interested in the, um, the perspectives of others on the panel because I think there are some synergies. So. Um, I'm in civics education, and which is really all about how do we um, invite young people, in our case, middle schoolers and high schoolers, um, to see themselves as uh, stewards of, uh, of our country um, and of our democracy. Um, that includes at the foundation um, a understanding of American history, right? How we think of how we can show up in our communities today in 2020. 22 um, is deeply connected to our understanding of who belongs in this country and whose voices have value. Um, and so I often um, think of myself, I'm very much not a historian, but I read historians and am um, really excited um, to, to hear from um, Black women historians um, who have been around from the beginning of this country um, and whose voices are increasingly making waves um, around our a, a more full understanding um, of what this country means is, and who it's for. And it's no surprise that that's been controversial. Um, I am in the organization that I lead, um, we really focus on doing democracy education in a way that has students, um, primarily students of color and students who are in under-resourced schools and rural and urban communities, um, make sure that they feel um, that their voices matter and can make change in their community. And surprise, surprise, in 2022, that's controversial now, right? It's controversial to um, invite all young people into that sense of full belonging and responsibility. And I think, and we know there's a connection between the way in which some Black women historians like Nicole Hannah-Jones more famously, but she is not alone at all um, in the field as really um, helping stake a claim for Black women's leadership as a part of US history more broadly. Um, and so it is drawing connections between um, Black women's narratives, as well as many minoritized narratives of how we got here that become a critical stepping stone to inviting young people to write the next chapter. Um, and so that's why I care very deeply about ensuring that our civics curriculum um, is a more diverse curriculum than what I grew up with in my textbook um, many, many years ago. Thank you for that. I really wish we had a Black woman historian on hand to give us a little bit of perspective about this. You know, it's really fascinating um, as I'm kind of taking it all in is that we have this kind of dichotomy, right? Like you started with this really interesting stat, right? Black women being about 7.5% of the populace, but then only representing, what was it, less than 1% of the sweet sea um, leadership, right? So that's one kind of position. And then you look at what people might point to as Black women's leadership in government, right? Like, so we have Katanji 
Brown, who is now going to be on the Supreme Court. You have um, Kamala it? Harris. Thank you. Whew. I was going to be like my soror. Um, <laughs> you know, who is vice president. And so there's these ways in which it looks like, right? Like it looks like Black women are in leadership positions in ways that matter and, and that are important. And they are, and yet we are still underrepresented. And how do we deal with that? What seems to be like a contradiction or seems to be something is amiss. Um, I think that we have to be really careful too when we're thinking about Black women's leadership that we're making sure that we're looking at Black women's leadership that reflects positions or, or at least with Black women who are positioned in ways that align with the majority of Black women who will never get into those rooms. So we can't just be looking for representation for representation's sake. That's dangerous. We know that that's dangerous. Clarence Thomas taught us that was dangerous. Mm -hmm. There are so many others, right, who has, who has taught us that that is dangerous. But like, what does it mean for Black women to be in these positions and to be advocating for women who will never be in those positions? Women who are the ones that Tanya serves, women who are the ones that will, will, will be the ones that I, will be in my classroom, who will never make it to the classroom. Um, so those are some of the questions that I'm kind of thinking about and thinking through. And at the same time, I even in the academy, Black women are missing. And yet our ideas are our, our um, talents, right? Like our resources are yeah. all showing up in the classroom, showing Hallelujah. up being published, right? Like I'm thinking of Bad and Bougie by Jennifer uh, Buck, mm -hmm. right? Uh. I'm thinking of other women who are very interested in like Black feminist thought, um, but yet won't quote, won't engage with Black women and Black women's thought in real and concrete ways. I'm thinking also about, and, and here the synergy is coming, right? Because now we have this moment when Roe v. Wade is, is, is under attack and we're still not really getting all of what uh, Dorothy Roberts talked about 20 years ago about reproductive justice, right? What that means, that it can't just be about abortion. So there's all of these things that are happening. Um, I'm just gonna throw that out there and, and, and I'm gonna see where we go from there. Yeah, I think Jasmine, you touch on a lot, especially for me, right? When you talk about the women that I serve, cause I all, I'd say quite seriously and quite facetiously that I do trap feminism, right? <laughs> I'm gonna be honest with y'all. I don't really care about what white people think. There's so much liberation in me committing myself to being like the white gays outside of like them erecting um, structures and systems that limit and, and, and then therefore define us through that limitation. I do not care about what white people think at all. Right. The only time that I care about it is when I see the ways in which we internalize the mm -hmm. white gaze and the myth of white supremacy. And so when I talk about trap feminism, for me, it's about the few black women in acad academia, the few black women that we have in these spaces. Right. Like as we move forward, we should be bringing people with us. But we know that that's not always the case. It is the case many of the time. I do want to preface by saying that I don't want to get into the trope and the lie that black women don't help each other, that there's no sisterhood. If that was not true, you nor I would be alive. Right. Like, <laughs> black women have created, you know, as problematic as we can. We can go down 
down the rabbit hole of why it's problematic. And of course it is because we are living in a very sick world, but nonetheless, we have created systems of sisterhood, but as many systems of sisterhood that we have created, we also have to be really honest and have conversations outside of the white gaze around the ways in which white black women have also internalized, right? The desire, right? And the myth that in order to be successful and achieve that we must then be adjacent to white supremacy, that we must take on the tenets and behaviors of white supremacy and Karenism, as I like to call it. Mm. Um, and so I am always concerned about feminist spaces, right? Where feminism would be the tool that would take many of the women that I serve that right now, as Jasmine says, don't have access to the classroom and make sure that those women are in the classroom as educators, as students, as guides, as stewards, because there is so much you there's so much wisdom that low income cash poor you know what i'm saying uh, uh, like like yes our aesthetic is popping right now we are the biggest <laughs> cultural import right Absolutely. they can rename it boxer blade braids we know it's box braids you know what i'm saying like all of a sudden white girls from minnesota got the long long coffin shaped fingernails we're seeing these things become mainstream and and white women being able to profit from them, Hollywood being able to profit from these types of aesthetics. Meanwhile, black women are continue black women who have been the arbiters and creators of this are continually being marginalized as we watch our aesthetic become mainstream. I am now going on Food Network with a full grill. 10 years ago, it would not have happened. It just would not have happened that way. And while I am inspired by black women who see me, especially from down South and are like, come on with the grill. And you know, I'm a Virgo. So we gotta we keep it a buck. This is the real grill, honey. 18 karat gold, stones, all of that, right? I'm also simultaneously concerned about the ways in which right, the media will take that, turn it into a trope and I will become another version of Aunt Jemima. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And we always have to be balanced in that way. And so for me, that is why it is very, is very important for Black women to be in these spaces and to be having these honest conversations where we can lean in, God forbid, you know, like using that term, uh, where we can lean in right into the ways in which we even when we even when I say I make a commitment to no longer code switching, still knowing that there are ways in which we have to navigate spaces to be savvy in spaces in order for us to get a bag to do the very basic things that we need to do in, in a capitalist society like feeding our families Then anybody who is not willing to be honest about that, you know what I'm saying, they're telling a damn lie, you know what I'm saying they're being at at, at worst they're being dishonest with themselves and at best they're being willfully ignorant with other folks um and so that i think is really important for us to have a varied like black women of varied experiences in spaces and the last thing i will say before i get off my soapbox is that we also really need to also these conversations need to not just be like about monolithic blackness which doesn't exist we need to also be really upfront about the ways in which colorism mm -hmm. plays a role in this because when 
when I talk about my feminism, I am talking about feminism that explicitly and unapologetically puts dark skin, big nose, big lip, high cheekbones, small eyes, fat women, queer women, disabled women, all of those intersections converging, right? Because many of us live at multiple intersections at the forefront of amplifying this because we seem to be very comfortable with a certain type of black radical feminism if it is presented by someone who is multiracial, racially ambiguous, light skin, palatable features, certain type of hair texture, you know, and we've seen this all the way back to like our pro-militant Black Panther days. No shade. Thank you. That was a, a really important intervention in understanding what this moment is, right? And part of what I was trying to think through when pulling this panel together is, is how do we disrupt this idea that there is a, a monolithic Black womanhood, right? And, and really push back against this idea that we are benefiting as a society from things being created, generated, supported, developed and pushed by Black women without any of the acknowledgement that these are the things that we're doing and then literally hiding certain groups of Black women while lifting up others, right? So like that's a that's a very real thing and I think we kind of need to sit with that in a way that we don't always. And I'm curious to hear if you have perspectives, any of you have perspectives about what some of the resources are for getting around that. I mean, I think I want to touch on what Tanya like left us with, right? Which is what her Black feminist praxis looks like. I, I, I think that Black feminism has been commodified, right? In this way that, A, it's been, it's kind of been watered down to me, intersectionality. So much to the point where like, I hear white women being like, I'm intersectional, I'm vegan, I'm from Kansas, you know, all of this stuff, right? So it's completely extracted <laughs> from its origins. And then there's this way in which there's, there's a removal of what I think has been the tradition a black feminist thought. What Patricia Collins wrote as mm -hmm. kind of like this legacy of black feminist thought, which was tied to part and partial of a larger community of people. And it was responsible to those people, right? So when you have black women getting into leadership positions and they are not tied to black people, black groups, black women, the queer black women, trans black women, you know, disabled, big bodied, small bodied, slim, thick, whatever, there's a, there's a problem, right? So, and I'm in academia, I'm around black folks who don't like black folks all the time. Ooh. Black folks who don't want to be around black people, black people who talk about black folks, but ain't really like, they can't be on the block. They can't be in the barbershop. They can't mm -hmm. be in the bar. You know what I mean? They can't be in they the- They see blackness as a pathology. They see blackness as a pathology. Absolutely. Or a path towards success, right? Mm -hmm. Like, or, or, or something- By pathologizing probably. it. <laughs> sure. That's <laughs> But I don't know if they do, right? Like, and so I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant on that part, but I, I'm not disagreeing. I'm just like, that probably has to be complicated in so many ways. But nonetheless, there, there used to be 
because of segregation away in which we were in spaces with black folks whether you yeah. want to be or not now we have these choices right and like there's a lot of folks who are willing able ready to be outside of black spaces don't want to be around black people there are, and we know this right like we know that these are these black folks who are looking to be the only one in the room i'm walking into a room and i'm looking for the black faces period point every blank, time right? like I'm, I'm really looking for it like where are we um, I think that that shapes what we see when we see these people coming into leadership. So when we think about resources, um, cause that was the question, right? <laughs> um, I think black communities, we are the resource. Mm -hmm. We are the source, right? Like, like, like we, this, that's where I get my energy from. That's where I get all of what I need from. You know what I mean? Like it, that is the, that is the real resource. That is the real, like re-energizing resource. That's, that's where I get like, I write, I do my scholarship based off of what I'm seeing, based off of what the need is, right? Like when we think of black studies, having a de descriptive and prescriptive uh, charge that for me is what is important, right? Um, so first and foremost, I think Black folks have to see themselves as the resource, as as the source, and then from there, we definitely need that green, right? Like I'm not saying that we can't, you know, we live in a capitalist society. Bills must be paid. All of that other good stuff. All of that other good stuff. Um, but making sure that Black people who aren't in these high places have the opportunity to articulate their, you know, ideas, their uh, solutions, their um, creativity, I think is super important. And, and that needs to look in various ways, right? Like I think that that needs to happen in, in all of these different facets, education, creativity, like whatever, whatever, whatever. Uh, absolutely. And I'm, I'm actually very interested in some of these points that that y'all are bringing up um nicole because you are working in in africa right now are you seeing things that are radically different and are there pieces of what you see in a society that is not dealing with the same sort of very challenging racial dichotomy it's dealing with challenges of its own right but i'm curious if you're seeing different means of being able to uplift the work of Black women when they are a, a different kind of majority population? That's a great question. I've been, I've been sitting with what everything and I'm thinking about my positionality and how it's, it's shifted um, with me moving to West Africa um, and have Having a particular level of privilege um, because of my educational background, because of my uh, means, my financial means, um, and I think I'm still trying to find. I'm absorbing what you're saying because I'm shifting. Um, you know, my 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 um, relationship to the and also thinking about France and a kind of like mm. my positioning um, in a post-colonial context. So I feel like I, I can't necessarily offer any insight. Um, I'm still trying to find my way. Um, 
because I'm I'm being fractured in in different ways now, um, and it's it's yeah. And and that's that a, any sense. And no, it does make sense. <laughs> And it's a it's a very fair point, right? In in the work that I did in South Africa while I was with the Mellon Foundation, I frequently found myself in in a similar place, right? Expecting to be able to engage in a way with folks around the work and then discovering how foreign I was to them and how closely positioned to a European identity that they were experiencing me in. And it was incredibly dislocating disappointing, confusing, right? So I, I think that's that's real and it speaks a lot to what it is that we sit with every day in this US, this US context. Um, shifting gears a bit, I'd love to hear a little bit about the societal issues or challenges that inform your work. What gets your attention and the resources of your organization and why? I really want to build, I mean, I'm working towards building out um, a curriculum from the primary school level onward that um, centralizes Africanist and diasporic philosophy. Mm. So that we're not going through this process of unlearning and relearning when we're in high school or college or finding, you know, supplementary materials when we go at home, you know, go home or into these after school programs, but really centralizing within the school context. Um, and so that's what has been driving my work and really trying to build that from, from, you know, early age, from these kind of formative years up um, and working on both sides. So, um, you know, focusing on Senegalese children and youth, but also focusing on uh, Black diasporic um, youth and young adults and bringing, you know, Black diasporic youth, young adults to Senegal and making those uh, connections um, and creating more collaboration uh, with, these, with these groups that kind of cuts into that uh, dependency on colonial aid here. There's still a heavy reliance on colonial aid from France and from European nations, mm -hmm. um, and I really want to kind of increase um, that kind of collaborative work between, um, you know, continue it right because this, there's a long legacy of this, but um, continue that collaboration between the Black diaspora and Senegal specifically. The work that's really animated my career more broadly um, has been really what it looks like to create um, institutions and processes that lift up the wisdom of the community. Um, and, and so some of that has, looked, has been very place-based um, and kind of community planning work. Um, and my the organization I was with before um, this current role was around kind of policy support and legal services in support of community organizing groups in New York City. One of the things I was thinking about with the, the last conversation was um, to Jasmine's point about um, resourcing women who are in leadership with other Black women. Mm -hmm. um, just thinking about the power of organizations that I know in New York, like Community Voices Heard or African Communities Together that mm -hmm. are grassroots organizing um, efforts of primarily, um, in those cases, Black women um, who are working together in service of making sustained change and building power years and years and years, building power. Um, and where and they often are under-resourced for a whole number of reasons, 
both because some people don't want the kind of uh, changes that they want to make for the city, but also because I do think in the nonprofit and philanthropic sector, there are so many drivers towards the one individual leader, right? The one person, whether they be in you know, the, the white savior, the black savior, doesn't matter. It's the one person. And the power of good organizing is to say, it's not one of us, it's all of us, right? Um, and so the, I feel a deep commitment around supporting black women's organizing. But the other thing I wanted to say um, about, so what's been the thread is a commitment to being a catalyst for the um, folks who are closest to the issues to be the ones who are naming the solution and advancing the solution and now doing that with high school and middle school students. And the issues that high school and middle school students are naming, um, and we work with students in eight states, including a lot here in New York City, um, are overwhelmingly mental health, economic violence, which they are observing through homelessness among their fellow students, um, racism in schools and in relationships between um, school safety officers um, or police um, and, and students, as well as environment issues um, and, and food access connected to the, the economic violence. And the reason I name these and could bring others into the conversation, but what I wanna highlight about, I think the power of doing youth voice work or engaging students in decision-making is they are naming issues and what they say as a part of our curriculum or as a part of the youth organizing work that happens in other settings is we're telling y'all and the school hasn't been making a change on this mm -hmm. and our parents haven't been making change on this elected officials aren't making change on this and and i think about the generational inequities that we have in this country where young people's voices are so routinely dismissed and not heard that it is no doubt and it's not a surprise that a majority of young people right now feel that America's democracy is broken. Yeah. Um, and so I just want to bring the the um, the issues that matter most to the young people who are a part of our work um, into the conversation. And thank you also for bringing up that environmental justice piece, because I feel like we don't sit enough with the racialized aspect of that, like whatsoever. No, Liz, I think you're right, right? Which is about women who are working with women and, and also the youth who are very clear about the issues that they need to see addressed. And I think that, that those are also the resources, right? And, and, I, and I'm wondering, as I was thinking, if Black women have had a history of organizing in a way that's not about one leader, but kind of like what needs to get done and how are we gonna get it done? If that is the reality, and then there's this, this kind of structure that is constantly kind of looking for one leader, there's always kind of a mismatch kind of approach, right? Like our, our pairing of some sort, that Black women's organizing is trying to fit into this scheme to get resources, to you know, be heard in certain kinds of ways, and it's a struggle. And I don't know. I don't. I mean, I would love for you to talk more about what what that means for like the kinds of organizations that you're working with and how they they navigate that. Because to me, I'm just like, I just want folks with the money to cut a check. Like <laughs> that's it. Cut a check. Like we got it. We can figure it out. We can do it on our own. But maybe you know, maybe there's something else that 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 you're seeing on that end. I, I mean, well, I'm I'm interested in Lee's point of view in philanthropy and perspective on this. But I'll say that one of the things that has been on my mind, and um, I am sometimes in conversations with 
funders who express a deep interest and commitment um, and say a lot of very well-meaning, very well-considered words um, around their commitment, either about racial justice, about democracy, or about any of the issues that, that we've named or that we're working on. Uh, and they, the comfort in which they live translates into a slowness of action that oh. is inconsistent with the urgency of the issues. Oh. And, and that is the probably infuriating disconnect, right? It's, yeah. and it's, a, it's a comfort with, with a pace that means like we can keep talking. We can, we can talk for another year or we can, we know that we have $10 million to do X. So we're gonna spend 18 months thinking about how we might spend X. And by the way, in those 18 months, we, I mean, can you just think of all the last things that happened in the last 18 months? Yeah. Yeah. Let alone when you're talking about economic justice issues and you're talking about people actually not putting food on the table that night as a result, right? And so that's the piece that, I mean, obviously there's so much in Jasmine in your point and in where the disconnect is, but um, I, what, where I start to feel a level of, of harm that the sector creates is that there are too many resources on the sideline because there's a comfort there that is not a comfort afforded to low-income people, to minoritized people. Um. I mean, yes, right? And this is, I mean, I feel like this is what Martin Luther King was talking about in terms of like, you know, these well-meaning liberal white folks who talk a lot, but aren't really interested in movement and action in, in the ways that would really con concretely create change. And, and at the same time, is it time for us to like stop expecting comfortable white people to be uncomfortable enough to make movement and change? Like, I, I just don't see it, right? Like, yeah. this yeah. is a conversation we're constantly having. Each generation does the same thing. And then we have these kind of like highlighted people who are like, yeah, nah, white folks ain't doing it. You know, so Tanya started us off with like, I don't care what white people say. I don't care what white people think. And I, and I understand it, right? Like, I get it, yes. I do not expect white folks to act right or to give us the keys to the, you know, to the kingdom, a seat at the table, to dismantle, you know, any of it. I do think that black folks have within us the ability to get free yeah. and to also free others. Um, but it's an uphill battle and it's a challenge, right? Like and do we have the ability to get free here? That is a question I'm constantly rolling around in my brain. Like I, I, in the US, in the US. I mean, the reality is I'm gonna go a little bit Buddhist here, even though I'm not a Buddhist, <laughs> but to live is to struggle. And if you create deep attachments to things, the deeper your struggling will be. I do not have in my brain any idea that if I go someplace where there are, where blackness is the norm, right? Like I talk to my African, African and Caribbean friends and they're always like, we don't see blackness the way y'all see it because like everybody black, like where I'm from, like everybody black. The people in the power structure are black. The people that are oppressing you are black. We know that there might be a white hand that's moving some system somewhere, but every day I see blackness. So this idea of defining myself in this framework of blackness the way that 
Black people in America do, which is a lot of times in opposition to something, doesn't necessarily exist as a reality for me. So Blackness is viewed differently. And this conversation became particularly, um, this conversation became particularly pertinent for me a couple of years ago when I decided that I was going to, as a working Black mother who now had access to some um, some monetary resources that I was going to get a nanny and a housekeeper. And I was like going through it. I was like, damn, as a black person who's had family, who was domesticated. And my African friends were like, what? Girl, back home, everybody got some help. Like, what are you talking about, right? And I was positioning in this eye, like, and they were like, we don't see blackness this way. Like, this is not how we see it. Like the lady who comes and helps, right? We consider it a gift. Like, because we don't see it in this way of like, oh, black people have been doing domestic work. They're like, of course, black people have been doing domestic work. Everybody over here black, right? And so my ability to be able to pay an auntie from someplace else to come in and help, like an auntie who's older, who's raised her children, right, is going to come and help my mama. And it's this idea of like, yes, we live in capitalism. And yes, we are trying to navigate the effects of imperialism and colonialism. But also everybody here is still black. And so this is an extension of the village that for me was mind-blowing because I don't see I've, I've never existed in blackness in this way and it really started to get me to start thinking about yes I believe J Jasmine like I'm a I'm gonna get a little even more hippie about it right I'm a little less academic with it I'm a little more hippie and spiritual I believe that black people are magic right like our melanin has the scientific ability to conduct electricity in a way that people who do not have our melanin like this is scientific fact right so once they told me that i was like i told y'all we was i told y'all we was magic right like, we are literally magic i absolutely believe that we have the wherewithal and the and 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 the power and the strength and and the mysticism right to be free for me, the question is, do we have the ability to be free here? I think from a historical standpoint, people forget that America is an experiment and a very young experiment. I'm not a historian, but like Liz, I read a lot of history. When I do get the chance to read, it's almost always like historical nonfiction, right? I'm obsessed with it because I believe that that's where, that history is not a blueprint, but it's a guide. And there's no way for us to be able to move forward if we are not studying history. So if you say that you are out here being a freedom fighter, I'm always shocked at people who are like, I'm out here fighting the power, right? And then you start asking about history and they like, oh, duh, 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 duh. you are out here with no guide, with no framework for what has been done, for nothing to feed your imagination, right? And so... For me, I'm like remembering that this country is an experiment and is an experiment that was really being conducted for the benefit of rich white men. Are we shocked about what we are seeing therefore, right? And are we shocked that we know that the more people who immigrate here, the more black folks fight to get free here, are we shocked about the ways in which we are realizing that this experiment is gonna fail and that the casualties and the collateral damage is going to be the biggest for non-white people, right? Particularly for black people upon which this experiment, the, back was, the, the, the backbone was built on. An experiment don't work without the permanent imprisonment and oppression of black bodies. Like we have to talk about that when we talk about the constitution. We have to talk about that when we're revering the founding fathers, right? And so for me, I'm like, 
where can we go in this world that will be more free than it is here, right? But also understanding that to live is to suffer. And no matter where we go, that we are going to also have to think about the human condition, right? Which is to think about how many of us feel like we need to stratify ourselves based on something, right? And that is not Black societies, right? And Black populations are not particularly those of us that have been in proximity to whiteness Mm -hmm. and uh, much of the world has been right it that exacerbates that so you know i don't know what question i was answering but i said something (laughs) well you know i i feel this question around whether what our place is in the american experiment right and i think there is nothing shocking that has happened in my eyes since 2016 which was a moment where a lot of people seemed like they got like rocked to their solar plexus not at all shocked just tired of being a lab rat right and really looking for what are these opportunities do we have to kind of right size some of this right and you know in the remaining minutes that we have i want to ask specifically what does each of you think an organization like Minnesota Opera, a well-resourced, well-connected force of culture in its own community, what can we do to be more supportive of Black women-led organizations and some of these causes that we've talked about this afternoon? Cut the check. <laughs> Say that uh, one more time for the people in the back. <laughs> Cut the check. You know, there's, there's, I mean, it would be helpful maybe to like even throw out some of the names of some of those organizations. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? The National Bailout is one of the organizations that I've been supporting for years. They are a group of mostly Black women, but not all Black women who have come together, who are bailing out Black mamas on Mother's Day. They've been doing it for four or five years. Uh, You can donate to them. They, uh, you know, they are more of a mutual aid grassroots organization that looks at the issue of cash bail and is addressing that in the ways that they can. Again, this is us being our own resource. Right. But if, if, you know, the Minnesota Opera House is interested in supporting organizations, it needs to be very real contributions that are monetary contributions, right? Like we can't continue to write statements. We can't continue to um, create, you know, cute little things, Mm -hmm. shirts and hats and all of that stuff that feels good. If you're interested in making a change, you have to be interested in being uncomfortable and you have to be interested in giving something up, right? Like that is part of acknowledging the privilege is being able to also say, all right, bet, I'm gonna do this. And maybe you make the contribution for a year, you make a decision, I will give 1% to this organization for 365 days. That is a very real contribution. I don't wanna see you giving to the national, you know, Negro Fund, although they're a great organization, cool. Or, in, you know, the NAACP, that's cool too. But there are these other small organizations, they may not have a 5013C status, and that's okay because they're still doing the work. And, and they're radical, they're in it. They're in it. And that needs to be, that needs to be, that we need to kind of like de, de, um, disaggregate all of these ways mm-hmm. in which barriers are created 
right? Mm-hmm. Like, because it's it's all formalized and structured in certain ways that create barriers for people who are doing the work to get the, get the work done. Earlier, Liz talked about homelessness and houselessness. There are people who are literally being evicted today. Right. If the, if the opera house cares about that, I don't know what the stats are in Minnesota. How about we start there, right? Like start local mm-hmm. and, and look at the black women who are there, who are being evicted, giving cut, cut a check. But cut a check without paternalism. Mm-hmm. As someone who actually runs an organization that has to do the, the shuck in the jive, I said what I said. I got it. Like, and I understand that I am part of the nonprofit industrial complex. And I tell people all the time this is a job. Revolution is not going to happen through this 501c3 or through your fiscal sponsor. Understand that it is a job. And I understand that. Like, I am making plans for the rest of my life. Like, what am I going to do when I leave this job? This job that I founded, that I created, that I've worked 12 years to make a little bit of change from. But it's a job. And it is a job that has been, that is deeply regulated through the government. That is a creation of the government for, again, for like rich people (laughs) and their money. Let's be honest about it. And so I understand that radical change will not come through there, but I could try, I could hedge. And one of the things that I talk about, like if nonprofits are really insistent, those with big endowments, like, nah, 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 we, we, wanna, we wanna help change and be a part of revolution. Okay, great. Then you have to do, not only do you have to give up something material, you also have to give up a mindset. And what we are not honest about is the are the ways in which White people actually, when they say they're in allyship with us, and I actually don't need white allyship, what I need is for white people to be radical accomplices, and there is a difference. An ally, there still is a level of paternalism, right? But if you are a radical accomplice, you understand right? And you are willing to mitigate and shoulder the effects of being in partnership with me. You understand that your liberation and freedom are just as tied up as in mine. So when I'm in cell block four and you in cell block three, you down in cell block three yelling, girl, don't snitch, right? When I go (laughs) rock, then you also right behind me, rock, right? Like we are in this together and we are then willing to mitigate the impacts whatever they might be together and that for white people is extremely scary that is the part that they don't want to give up because many of them now are willing to give up money they're going to throw money at you right and left we saw that during the pandemic and during the height of like civil unrest and what i like to call like the civil rights movement part deux. like we saw that we people were willing people threw lots of money at the black feminist project what they were not willing to give up however was that mindset of paternalism right the idea that they don't really truly trust black women because if you did you would cut the check and then you would get the hell out of my way and you would trust that we knew what we were doing in our own communities. And like Jasmine said, there wouldn't be all this formality. There wouldn't be the RFP where I've got to spend five hours, six hours, seven hours, maybe a week of capacity, depending upon this RFP, right? That says that we want to fund, you want to do capacity building, right? We want to give you money to build capacity. But now we're going to ask you to take your limited capacity and write this grant. And then three times during the granting period, we're going to ask you to give us quarterly reports, right? And then for accountability purposes to make sure you're not actually scamming us (laughs) and using this money for 
things that are untoward, right? It feels like another remix of the of of of, of the the myth of the welfare queen, right? Yeah. Like we're gonna give it to you. We know you need it. We say we want to help you, but we don't actually trust that you know what to do with this money. And so we're gonna create and erect all of these barriers and obstacles and hoops that you have to jump through in order to maintain this. And then on top of that, the grant that we give you is only gonna be one year because you gotta face three hundred and some odd years of inequity. But bitch, you're supposed to change it in this one year. So I think for us, really like, yes, cut that check. I am with, I am with it. Give up the money, but also give up the authority and privilege that comes away, comes along with giving away the money. Give it and give it often and give it freely and give it knowing that you aren't getting it back in some way and then get the hell out of the way. Um. This has been um, just such a powerful conversation. I'm so grateful to be um, uh, to be listening, um, and let alone be contributing. So, um, the only things I would add um, are recognizing the power of music um, and healing. Mm. Um, there are 34,000 public school students in Minneapolis. Um, students across the country before the pandemic and now are struggling. Mental health cri crisis is real and it is not something that we can alone support through clinical approaches um, and students need all of the support they can get for healing. And so this would be a moment for cultural institutions led by the opera and others to absolutely lean into how do we support every single Minneapolis public school student and their family to have the resources that they need, um, the way that culture can heal. And that's free access in all, free access and bringing all of the arts to communities across the city. Um, so those are, are just a few ways in addition to cut the check. <laughs> Thank you and working on it. Uh, Nick, do you want the last word about what we can do to be more supportive of these kinds of issues? What Tanya spoke to is what I am facing as a, you know, in my early stages in this nonprofit. It's incredibly paternalistic. Everything, yeah, everything that everyone said are things that can be changed. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And thank all of you. This conversation has been extraordinary friends like i i'm so glad that i have the opportunity to share some of these perspectives with our audience so liz tanya nicole jasmine so grateful that you all joined us and on behalf of minnesota opera i wish you all a very happy juneteenth thank you everybody and we are back I uh, just want to thank all of our fabulous panelists once again for joining us. And Lee, thank you for putting that together. That was fantastic. Oh, absolutely. I, I appreciate Bravo. both of you for making, play, making space and supporting the, this conversation. And I look forward um, as we continue to having more conversations like these with with folks who get to share their perspectives in ways that I think can really push us to do better. Um, so yeah, thank you all as well. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. And I'm, I'm so happy this is becoming an annual tradition. Especially <laughs> on Juneteenth. Exactly. <laughs> like our annual Juneteenth panel. It's so cool. Um, and if any of you um, have any ideas, if that inspired anything, you 
want to um, write to us and let us know what you think, um, the score at mnopera.org is our email and we want to hear from you. Um, but in the meantime, it is time for our favorite segment of the show and a one and a two and a one, two, three, four. It's peanut butter jelly time, peanut butter jelly time, peanut butter jelly time, peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly with a baseball bat, peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly with a baseball bat. Yes. Well, y'all know my PB&J, like, <laughs> B is back and I'm sleeping good at night. You won't break my soul. You won't break my soul. Yes, I'm telling everybody. Everybody. Release your job. Release your job. Release your anger. Release your job. Release your trade. I mean, Beyonce said release your trade, girl. I'm playing with her. Juneteenth. Happy Juneteenth. Happy Juneteenth. She said happy Juneteenth. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. <laughs> <laughs> no, so let me tell you who this is for. In case like, you didn't know. <laughs> she just is such a gift to this world. Now, in case, in case you have been living under a rock, Beyonce has come back to us finally after a long <laughs> six-year break. <laughs> she said, I can't with this Trump presidency business, you all handle that. <laughs> she announced that uh, the new album Renaissance will be um, dropped on July 29th. And then she made us all buy mystery boxes. We don't know what's in them. But we bought it anyway. (laughs) But we bought Mm -hmm. it anyway. And then she came out with the first single, Break My Soul, where she told us to all quit our jobs after she made us buy this $50 mystery. (laughs) (laughs) But that's okay. That's okay. Because I got my life (laughs) dancing around the kitchen the other night. Yeah. while doing the dishes so thank you Beyonce for blessing us this is in these these troubled times <laughs> it was so nice to have our queen back and giving us just such beautiful words set to such beautiful beats and shout out to Big Frida and yeah, thank you yes yeah. and Robin S and Crystal Waters and everyone who had a hand in um, making that song the bop that it is. Now I know that everyone does not feel the same way. A lot of people don't, they say. That's what that's what they're so saying. They that's say. what they say. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. is that what they say? Okay. That is what they are saying. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay. Well, we don't want to get the beehive mad at us. We don't. We want them mad at other people on yes. other podcasts. Yes. That yeah. is the yeah. goal. Yeah. This is this is just hearsay. This is hearsay. Just... Mm. <laughs> and do we want do we want to 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 hear what they are saying the hearsay that they are saying or or are we just gonna leave that alone some people i think have too high expectations that every beyonce song is going to change their life 
<laughs> but sometimes a song is just a song. It is to quote someone I heard say, a bop to do the dishes too, right? <laughs> so that is what it is. And people need to engage with it at that level, period. <laughs> I can't with you. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just word on the streets, though. That's just word that's, on the streets. Just... Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Y'all didn't hear it from, from us. Uh -huh. <laughs> mm -mm. <laughs> well, in any case, thank you, uh, Beyonce Giselle Knowles Carter. <laughs> Blessings to you and your husband, your beautiful children your sister, your mama, your daddy, and everyone over at Parkwood Entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got. Well, I have a little bit of pure Black joy. Um, while we're on the topic of Beyonce-related people, mm. Um, mm. one of my all-time favorite singers, as everybody knows, is Jennifer Hudson. Mm -hmm. And oh, yes. as of last week, she entered very rarefied space as a producer of Strange Loop, a Pulitzer Prize winning Broadway play about what it is to be black and gay in the American musical theater, particularly resonant in these parts. Um, Jennifer won a Tony, which gives her the full complement of the Oscar, Emmy, Tony, Grammy, Golden Globe, SAG. She's got all of them. Um, Everything everything mm. everything and she deserves it all only two black women um jennifer and the great Whoopi goldberg have attained that status i think maybe like 17 or so people actually have all four of the major awards from the performance guild so mm. big shout to mm -hmm. jennifer and a huge reminder to everybody because i remember on american idol and i remember certain people mm. simon looking at you um, who did not believe that Jennifer had what it took to make it in show business. And she showed him that she does. Um, it's been the gift that keeps on giving, watching her career and being reminded that if you are talented and you work hard, there is still space for you in the performing arts landscape to make a real impression and to inspire people and and she's a huge inspiration for me in addition to having an old nasty piece of larynx so mm -hmm. i just <laughs> salute you jennifer i absolutely love you you are my favorite singer and you can be on the show anytime you want Full i stop. would die oh i would God. too i can't even I Die. I can't. It'd be even. such a strange episode because none of us would be talking. No. <laughs> <laughs> We'd have to release just like say? a like a video version of us just like staring in awe right. while she's just fidgeting. Like, is, is somebody gonna say something? <laughs> I don't know what to do. I knew things for me, things were like sealed for Jennifer when aretha franklin herself yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah said that is who i want to play me yes. don't even I, that that is who that that is it like that is the recommendation that is the guideline that is i was like that seals it because mother aretha didn't 
as we know didn't rock with just anybody exactly beautiful (laughs) one of the greatest moments ever in an interview with any person ever on the history of earth like that she spoke so much when she responded to that question beautiful panels (laughs) you know i remember there are not very many american idol moments that have stuck with me over the years but i will never ever forget that night that she was eliminated because it was her in the bottom three Mm -hmm. with fantasia Fantasia. and what was her latoya London. london Latoya London, it was the yeah. three of them and we were mm-hmm. like I-, I will never forget my mother mm-hmm. being like this ain't right this no. is insane racism right and it's like this- if you didn't if you didn't know <laughs> if you didn't know already there's something deeply wrong with this country it's like <laughs> 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 that is the bottom three like that's insane oh yeah and it wasn't even like any of them had had like a bad night no they didn't no like all three of them were spectacular. Singing Barry Manilow songs of all things. Like that's what that week was. Did any of them ever have a bad night on that show no. to be honest? No. Cause I didn't no. remember one. No. None of them did. Not, not I, ever. I remember no. LaToya having a little stumble on Elton John night because I just think she, not because she didn't sing the song well, uh, just cause she did that um, Mona Lisa's and Matt Hatter's Mm-hmm. And like whoever arranged it, it was all messed up. So it wasn't her fault. No, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> she sang it brilliantly. That's the only thing that I can remember. That even like the little teeniest, tiniest of a slip up from any three of them. Any of the And that had been the week before. It's weird that I remember this because this really was like 16 or 17 years ago. It really was. <laughs> but that was the week before and Jennifer had sung uh, Circle of Life. Mm-hmm. And it was just this like very straightforward delivery. I'm going to give you the melody. I'm not going to do a whole bunch of runs and screaming high cue flats and everything else that she's capable of doing. She just sung the song, right? And everybody heard it. And then next week they voted her off. And I'm like, I actually, I actively have a problem and I'm considering repatriation. Not sure that I'm going to stay here in these United States if y'all are playing these games. And then they turned around and elected Trump. So. And wasn't that the same year? Because it was Fantasia versus like Diana DeGarmo mm-hmm. and that Hawaiian girl, Jasmine mm-hmm. Trias with the- Jasmine Trias, yes. She, was, she had a cute voice. She had a really cute voice. I remember her. The... No. She... <laughs> 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 Sounded like a broken oboe. <laughs> no. 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 But then when Jennifer went on to Dream Girls, mm-hmm. has this incredible career so many accomplishments and it was just like see that's what you get that's That's what you you get get. simon paula Mm -hmm. randy randy Mm -hmm. jackson now you're just the band leader on name that tune see that's what you get (laughs) sir (laughs) honestly if we could have her impact in dream girls be a whole nother conversation oh absolutely the way she brought dream girls to another generation of black people because let's be honest the other performances they were good they were Mm -hmm. giving but it was jennifer's yeah like every black theater kid i know of my generation 
knows and i am telling you her version to the t mm-hmm. to the t mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you can bust out in song and we know it we know the whole argument watch your mouth miss effie white we know we know the whole thing and that's because of her like yes yeah that's because of how iconic she was in that role and then it led to so many other iconic moments like chichi devane in the black and white yes lip sync on revolt like i mean the i mean it's just the it is a a tree from which so many iconic moments have 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 sprouted um and she's just yeah. We should do a dream girl show next season. We should put it on our calendars. We should. Let's do it. No, because I I would like an excuse to just watch it. Yeah, same. (laughs) Same. (laughs) Haven't watched it in a minute. Would love to revisit it. I have so many favorite moments. Like it was one of the few times I've actually like stood up and applauded in a movie theater. I'm sure I look like a complete maniac, but but I was moved to do it It, because I because they they did it. They. He did that. Also, my favorite Eddie Murphy performance of all time. So good. Jimmy Who did he lose that Oscar to? To the the grandpa and Little Miss Sunshine? Yes, that is um that's the guy. Mm. Was that was that mm. was that fair? No. I saw Little Miss Sunshine, but I don't know if it was given all that. It you wasn't. Only, it, it was wasn't. cute. It, it was, was cute. cute. The thing that I remember the most about Little Miss Sunshine was Tony Collette as the mom reaching into a bag of salad and being like, everybody needs to have a little bit of salad. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, that just tickled me so much. <laughs> I also um, love Tony Collette. She's a... She's a, a national treasure of Australia. Australia, I believe. Yeah, I think yeah, so. I think yeah. that's right. Yes. Yeah, she's pretty great. Yeah. You. You're terrible. Okay. Uh, <laughs> 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 this reminds me, I have a very silly kind of pure black joy, I think. Um, well, I don't know if that's we talk the best about... kind. <laughs> no, I, I like those personally. I, I don't know if we've talked about the circle on this show. Uh, the show on Netflix. Netflix. Yes, I I love the Circle. It is one of my guilty pleasures. If you don't know, it's like a, a social networking kind of competition. Uh, they put a bunch of strangers together and they create these like online personas that could be Ooh. themselves or could be a total catfish. Uh, and as the seasons go on, they've introduced uh, different layers of, of catfishing. So maybe they'll have someone mm. who got eliminated and then the circle is like, hold on, you're still in the game and we're going to give you a chance to enter as a catfish. And they're going to think it's a, it's a new player and all of that. And really? celebrities on there. And there was one woman who was a, a Lance uh, Gross's assistant. Um, and so people were... Uh, not Lance Gross, Lance Bass. Uh, <laughs> I was like, this is Lance Gross. Mm-hmm. I was like, wait, wait, those names are those names are getting mixed. <laughs> and so there was someone who was like a major NSYNC fan and was like, I, I, I'm going to see if this is a catfish or not. Is this really Lance? It was like his assistant playing as him. And but oh, my pure okay. black joy is that this season 
uh, there are a couple of Spice Girls in the mix who people on the show do not know are the Spice Girls. Like the real ones? Yeah, they're all like in different rooms while they're playing. It's like they're all in like a big apartment building, but different rooms where they don't see each other. Wait, so so I I watched the first season of The Circle, so I'm sort of familiar with like all the pre-twist ones. So is it, so it's two Spice Girls like living in separate apartments and they don't know that no, no, no. So there's a bunch of other contestants on the show and they're, they're two playing together. Oh. It is so, Baby oh, Spice and Scary Spice. Oh, so two become oh. one. <laughs> <laughs> you know the vibes. Actually, they have one account together and they're catfishing as someone, some random dude. And the other players have no idea that it's actually Mel B and baby spice behind there but melby is my black joy and my black (laughs) queer joy because one she is still so fine and still i still have a huge crush on her like (laughs) still rocking the leopard print also (laughs) so funny so funny i was just and also kind of my pure black joy because that's one of the things you can look on with you know different perspective that time now and you're like why did they always have her in leopard print and why was her name scary spice i mean uh, she got uh, a whole lot of personality mm, she does uh, uh. she is like i can tell like there is some truth to her being <laughs> maybe <laughs> one of the wilder ones or personalities of the group but also for like why did why, why, why they do that? Let's 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 examine. Let's examine. <laughs> but that she is, is an a interesting lot question. of laughs. Yeah. 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 I, mean, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I mean, hmm. And why are we hmm. calling Victoria Pospice? I mean, I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> At least back in the late 90s. <laughs> it was aspirational. Some, I'm just saying. <laughs> I have some questions. I have some questions. Uh, but I'm rooting for everybody Black on the circle, <laughs> as I usually am. There's also a Black queer man on there. I think, is he from DC? I want to say he says from, like, from the DMV somewhere. Oh, okay. um, hmm. So, yeah, the circle... <laughs> shout out it's fun and I've also noticed this thing that always happens I think with most of the black contestants I have a theory a lot of the time we're really good at the game they're really good at the game they're charming or popular and like everyone likes them then the competition part uh comes Mm -hmm. in and they're like wait no, now we got to get people to turn against them or we got to turn a different alliance because so-and-so seems to have such a lock on this game. And I see it happening again. Mm. I see it happening. Mm-hmm. It has happened more than once in these seasons. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes me root for everybody Black even more. Um, so shout out to all the Black contestants who have ever been on The Circle, actually. And <laughs> don't let them play y'all on that show anymore. For okay. <laughs> because as a connoisseur of nonfiction, I see in so many con- competition reality shows this happening all the time. And then like right? it's like so messed mm-hmm. up on like Survivor, and it's just like, oh, this is like a microcosm of society. So like, okay, so we're gonna definitely get the black queer people out first. 
Mm-hmm. All the time. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to work on like that mouthy black lady over there. Uh-huh. <laughs> Tell us we were making the fire wrong. <laughs> and made us feel bad. And then we'll keep the black dude around because he might be good in challenges or he might be good at solving the puzzles. And then once his usefulness has as is, is done, then we'll get rid of him. You know, it's like you basically so- just retold what happened on season two. <laughs> I'm just saying. So that's why I am so into, and I want to go back and I want to watch this, watch last um, last year's Big Brother, because um, they had all of the black people in the house and like they were getting ready to just sort of pick them off one by one, and all those black folks got together and they said, no, 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 ma'am. That's not what's happening. We're forming a secret alliance called the Cookout, and we're all each going to adopt a non-Black person in the house who's going to be like our little helper to help us all get through to the end of the game. And then we're going to get rid of each of our, we're going to get rid of all of our non-helpers, and then we're going to get rid of each of our helpers one by one. And then it's just going to be the six of us, and we're all going to go to the end because there had never been a Black winner a big brother in like 20 years. I've heard that. Not Interesting. Yeah. And of course at the end, then it came down to like these two cis straight dudes sort of not being particularly kind to the women and the queer men. So. <laughs> so there's that, but. <laughs> rooting for everybody. Yeah. Okay, now I want to watch that. I'm, yeah, right? I want to watch it I'm too. I'm intrigued. I have not watched it yet, but now I have my friend's Paramount Plus account. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> well, so this has been fun. Some much needed fun. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank the two of you, as always, for being so lovely. And my friends. <laughs> um, so next time we are actually taking a little break. Um, yes, it is some some summertime, and y'all, we need a vacation. Like I don't know what. So we are going to take next week off. Um, we will be back at the end of July with an all new show for y'all. Um, but in the meantime, if you would be a lamb and leave us a review, <laughs> um, that would be so nice. Um, it helps Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all those places um, give us the um, much needed deten- uh, attention that we deserve. Thank you. <laughs> so leave five stars, leave some words, um, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, tell your friends. Write to us, the score at mnopera.org. I think that's it. I think I got everything. I think you might have. I think so. Okay. Well, everyone, enjoy your summer. Thank you to our wonderful panelists again. And before we go on vacation, any words of wisdom? I actually do. Ooh. It's pride. Yes. Oh, hey, In the tradition of ancestress. Uh, Marsha P. Johnson, P stands for pay it no mind. Pay it no mind has been on my heart lately, especially, uh, there's a lot of BS right now. 
trying to take us out. But there are certain things. There are a lot of things where we can pay it no mind. So I'm channeling uh, ancestor Marsha P. Johnson for that. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Pay it no mind. Amen. Yeah. Stay safe out there, everybody. Release your anger and release your trade. But not your mask. <laughs> but not your mask. <laughs> but not your mask. <laughs> your mask. <laughs> right. We'll see you in a month. Bye. 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 <laughs>